Amen. Thank you, Justin and Sarah. And, and students, thank you all so much for being here and for worshiping, uh, not just this morning, but all weekend, which means that, that you all know that they are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready for a sermon that they won't nod once during, and we're excited to have them here. It's good to see them together, isn't it? You know, our students are so often split between our, our two services. It's great to see God's people together in so many ways, uh, but especially on, on mornings like this one. If you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, as we've heard read already in the service, as we take that as our text uh, this morning. In Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. Now, Mr. Rosen is what they called him. He was a seventh grade teacher. And he had just completed his Teach for America fellowship, so he was still early in his teaching days. And so he was considering and, and contemplating often things about strategy and classroom style and how to divide his groups up for classwork. And he noticed that students wouldn't participate as often if they were forced into groups that they didn't pick. And so he had decided early on to let students group themselves up for work. He figured if, if they were more productive and they liked it better, what's the harm? Well, halfway through his second year of teaching, and it wasn't like it was the first day or the first week, and his class was only 24 students. He had handed some papers over to one of the, the girls in the class, the kind that seems to know everybody. She handed out a few of them and came back slowly to his desk and whispered in his ear, Mr. Rosen, talk to him. Try not to let the other students hear as she whispered to him. I don't know who these people are, she said. Well, in that moment, he stopped and he realized that one of the students in his class that he thought knew everybody couldn't even hand back half the papers of the class's work. And so he stopped the class in the middle of this independent reading block. He halted all the schoolwork that was going on. He said, now, by show of hands, I, I want to know, how many of you all think you can name all the people in the room? How many of you can name all the students in our class today? And only a couple hands timidly, began to raise in the air. You know, he discovered in his seventh grade class a symptom of what's true of all of us in this room, isn't it? Not only do we, when we're left to our own devices, prefer to, to group up with the same people all the time, but we're kind of bad at knowing each other, at community, at, at togetherness, at branching out beyond the same people that we talk to day in and day out. Our world really isn't that good at community, is it? Not that good at, at knowing one another. But we don't have to take this seventh grade class as evidence for that kind of isolation that we experience in the world. The World Health Group Cigna, just in May of 2018, completed a survey of more than 20,000 U.S. adults, ranging in age from 18 all the way up to the end of lifespan. And, and they asked them, about loneliness and isolation, and, and they charted them on the UCLA scale of loneliness. The findings were that more than half of the survey respondents, 54% of people, said they always or sometimes feel that no one knows them well. 56% reported they sometimes or always felt like the people around them aren't necessarily with them. I can relate when I preach sometimes, but, oh, good, you're with me. 
Two in five people said they, quote, lack companionship. That their relationships, quote, aren't really meaningful and that they are isolated from others. Two in five, 40% of people felt that way. Even worse, one in five people report they rarely or never feel close to anyone or feel like there are people that they can talk to. And that kind of isolation, that kind of experience of loneliness is sometimes associated with with older age or later in life. But actually the survey found that as the generations went down, the, the loneliness scores got worse and worse. In fact, Generation Z, the youngest participants that were surveyed from ages 18 to about 22, were the loneliest generation in the entire survey. And today in the world, we're getting a better and better picture of of what the effects of that really are, our growing disconnectedness from one another, our isolation in our communities, the breakdown of our social structures and what that does to us uh, both mentally and physically and how that affects human beings, all of these things, symptoms of something that we were created for community by a God who is in himself community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, sadly, as we think about the way we experience this socially and loneliness and isolation, we often have a gospel that reflects those same characteristics, a message of salvation that speaks only to to individuals about their personal and private faith and holiness and, and what that means for their life as an individual. But the reality is that the passage that you heard read earlier from Ephesians chapter two that we're gonna walk through together has a word to say in a splintered and isolated world. Our text tells us in Ephesians two that the, the redemption, the restoration, the reconciliation that we have experienced in Jesus is not just about our vertical relationship to God, although it is, but is also about our relationship to one another that we've been redeemed not only out of our lostness, our estrangement from God, but also from each other. And so Ephesians 2 begins earlier in the chapter by reminding, Paul does, his leaders, his readers of, of the drastic effects of Christ's saving work. And so he does some before and after work in, in Ephesians chapter two. He's reminding them back in verse four that they were dead, but now they've been made alive. They were in verse 12, separate, excluded, strangers to the covenant and promise of God, but in Christ they've been brought near. And so in verse 19, he continues with this sort of before and after language saying, so then or therefore as a result of these things, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So the passage begins by pointing backwards in light of what Christ has done, in light of the reality of of his having made us alive in Christ, that he's brought us peace, the language of, of Ephesians 2 says, that he's destroyed the dividing wall, brought near those who were formerly far off, made one man out of the two, Jew and Gentile, given us access to God in one spirit to the Father. The consequence of all of these things, all that Jesus has accomplished, is that you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now, Gentiles heard this message as something 
significant. And it's the beginning of what we'll look at of three different images that Paul uses in this passage to describe this new community that's been brought together in Christ. And the first one is that he tells them they are fellow citizens. The Gentiles now belong in a way that they never did before. And Paul uses the metaphor of citizenship to show that those who were once outsiders now belong to this community. They have a a relationship, a connection to this commonwealth, this kingdom of God that they're now citizens in. And Paul knows the benefits of Roman citizenship. Maybe you remember that story in Acts chapter 22 when, when Paul kind of plays the citizenship card to get himself out of trouble. People had begun to raise their voices. They even said things like, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Remember Acts 22, 23 says they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and they were flinging dust into the air because they were so mad at Paul. A commander orders Paul to be taken back into the barracks and as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul says to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and he asked him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Now what did they expect Paul to answer to that question? Stretched out, ready to be flogged. Your one saving grace is, are you a citizen or not? Paul stretched out there kind of, uh, 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 yeah, yes, yes, definitely a citizen today. The commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Paul says, but I was born a citizen. You see, getting Roman citizenship wasn't easy. And these were two of the ways that you could acquire that, to have been born into Roman citizenship or to to purchase it for yourself at what seems to have been a great expense. And so when Paul starts using this image of citizenship, this protection under a certain law or group, He knows its power. He also knows its price. And he knows that this is a gift for the Gentiles and the Jews that's been offered to them freely at a cost that they could never afford to pay but has been purchased for them and is now given to them as a gift. He says, you are citizens of a kingdom. But notice he says, you're fellow citizens of a kingdom. You're not individuals who get to live isolated amongst this new country You're going to relate to one another in a common way, even though you were once separated. It's for this reason that in Philippians, Paul can say in in uh, chapter 3, verse 20, that our citizenship is in heaven because he considers himself to belong, to be a citizen of another kingdom. It was Jewel, the unicorn character in the the last battle novel by C.S. Lewis, who describes his homecoming like this. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. Come further up. Come further in, he cries. And in some way, Paul is calling to these Gentile believers, I want to teach you about the kingdom you were made for. And you've enjoyed the other one only because it reminds you a little bit of the one you were created for, a community in God. And so first he tells them, you are fellow citizens together. And the second image as he moves to to new metaphors is that they are members of God's household. 
Not only are they fellow citizens together, but they belong in the same family. They've been adopted, as the scripture uses the language. They've been taken in to God's people as sons and daughters. So not only do they have new status with God, they have a new relationship to each other. There's no way to be God's son or daughter without also being a brother or sister. And so 1 John 3, verse 1 through 2 can say, See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And so in the same way that their citizenship in God's kingdom was to transcend their allegiance to the Roman Empire, Paul's telling them that they've been adopted into a new family. That's why Jesus can say that that a man will leave his father and mother, that, that you should take up your cross and follow him because this new family that they've been called up into supersedes even their biological family. That whoever loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, Jesus says. And so their identity as a family, their connectedness in a household was to be a defining mark of who they are. And this is not just uh, like your family, but different, like your biological family that lives in a house and goes on vacation and maybe uh, consists of four, five, six people. The biblical vision of a household talks about a network, and oikos is the Greek word. Now, all of the people involved in this network that belonged to one master who offered them protection and security and provision in life. And so not only are they fellow citizens, but they're members of this household that shares and cares for one another in all of the ways a family would. Rodney Stark is a historian and scholar who writes a little, wrote a little book called The Rise of Christianity. And in it, he sought to explain how this obscure social movement of Jesus followers became a dominant religious force in the ancient world. He's a, a sociologist and tries to explain in sociology terms how this movement progressed from being a few people to so many in such a short span of time. He, he comes up with a number of conclusions, but among the reasons why he says Christianity's growth exploded was in their care for one another. Not only physically, they, they literally nursed one another through disease and epidemics that would have greater effects on others in the community. But their connectedness allowed them to, to survive and to spread through their networks and care for each other. Their, their care for each other, their, their common nursing of one another in illness or sickness or, or disease or even hard times caused them to survive better than other people to literally live longer because they cared for one another so well. This is the kind of household, Paul says, you have been saved into. To be fellow citizens, to be members of the same household. And the third image he moves to is that you are all stones in a temple, he tells them. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Christ Jesus himself, he says, is the cornerstone. 
Now, scholars are divided exactly what this means. Some of them suggest that, that the word might be best translated capstone, that it's talking about the stone that's placed on top and sort of has the place of prominence and holds the building together or maybe joins the archway uh, with the, the stone at the top. Others pointing to Isaiah 28 are reminded that this is a stone on the foundation, that it's the, the stone that sets the corner, that marks out the path of the rest of the building so the, building, the builder can find the lie or the, the line for all the rest of the blocks that follow. We use these today mostly in, in decorative ways. We'll etch on there what year the building was built or who donated to make it happen, churches or structures giving honor to people or dates. But the image Paul uses reminds us that, that Jesus is the one stone that defines how the whole rest of the building is going to be built up together. And so he becomes for us not only what joins us together, but our example for what we're called to be as a community. Well, Peter Waters was a local resident of Queensland, Australia. He managed the vineyard of a, of a landowner by the name of Stuart Moreland. And in order to, to grow this giant vineyard there in Australia, they had to clear, to till the land of, of numerous amounts of granite, huge rocks piled all over the landscape that were tilled, removed, so that a, a vineyard could be created there, vast in size. And, and one day, really kind of trivially, he asked Moreland, well, what do you intend to do with uh, all these granite rocks and the, the land the owner jokingly said well you know maybe we'll just build a pyramid well four hours later Peter Waters called back and had hired his friend Ken Stubberfield for a cost of a thousand dollars with his machinery and said we're going to build that temple over eight months using an excavator and a dump truck it took 75,000 tons of the surplus granite they tilled off the land they had built a pyramid that was 30 square meters, 15 meters tall in the middle of an otherwise green field with nothing else around it. A few years ago, what's called the Balandian Pyramid still exists today, was sold to a farmer for $850,000. As they were building it, they built a makeshift ramp just so they could to haul the machinery up and just keep stacking granite stones into a giant pyramid. Why, you ask? Because on a whim, one guy decided that might be fun to do with some granite blocks. You know, when the Bible speaks about living stones in 1 Peter, or here that you are parts, blocks, stones in a temple, it's not talking about God creating something or making something for no good reason or on a whim or just because he felt like it. It's talking about the recreation of a community that was lost at the fall, to, to call God's people back together, to create something specific. And what does the text tell us that is? That this whole building is being fitted together and growing to become a dwelling place for God. This is to be the place where God is at home. The holy temple in the Lord is the place where God dwells. It's not made up of pillars or arches or altars or, or stones or stained glass. No, it's made up of human beings who are together by their, the way that they live and the way that they share in community to be the place where God's spirit is alive and active in the world. Not in you, 
but in you all. Or as we like to say in Texas, in y'all. Or if we're going to get real specific, in all y'all. That is where God's home is in the world. And we've so made salvation about me and mine and about Jesus dying for you that we've forgotten that Jesus died for all y'all, all of us, so that we might together be a temple. Stones fit together, joined together, maybe bricks from all different quarries because we've got some odd ones here and there that are tough to fit in, but we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Paul says, those who came and proclaimed the message to us that we received. And we can know that this, this building will last and it has purpose and meaning because it is all aligned and it's all centered on, built upon a foundation of which Jesus himself is the cornerstone, the one that went first, the one that marked the way, the one that proved this is true life. And we look forward, not just to being that community here, but to being that community here so that the world can see that's where creation is headed. Because the, the biblical story makes it clear, God's not just forming a temple of his presence on this earth for fun. He's doing so that the whole world might know him. And so as he heals and redeems us from our brokenness, he doesn't just heal our personal sin and give us personal salvation, but, but brings us back together so that we would point as a community, so that we would point the world to the future he has in store, a day when the glory of the Lord, Isaiah says, will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. And so we are fellow citizens, members of a household, stones on a temple. We were created for community. And when our brokenness wrecked that design, when we became more and more estranged from each other because of the sin in ourselves and in our world, God comes and he recreates us for the same community he intended from the beginning. Community with God, but also community with one another. There's no such thing as, as lone ranger Christians in the Bible. It, it has no vision for, for religious life by yourself. It was John Wesley, the, the famous Methodist preacher, who recalls in his journal of meeting a serious man who said to him, Sir, you wish to serve God and go to heaven, but remember, you cannot serve him alone. You must therefore find companions or make them. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. And Wesley says those words rung in his ears for years and years to come. You must find companions or make them. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. And listen, some of us have come this morning and come each week having chosen our isolation. Maybe even preferring it because it's easier or it's, it's less difficult. And then there are those in our midst that haven't chosen isolation, but are victims maybe of the world around them and of a disconnectedness. And so they come here and what they need to find in us and what we need to convict one another of is that we cannot do this Christian life alone. 
The gospel saves us from both choosing isolation and being stuck in it. So whether you're either one of those today, the gospel has a word to speak today, a word that says that community is not just the result of preaching the gospel. It is itself a declaration, an expression that the gospel is alive here in us. And that's why Jesus prays in the garden that his love would be known by his followers so that the world would know who God is. And so the text tells us today, and we hear God saying that when his rule and his reign is present, a community emerges. Taken in the opposite way, God's very reign and rule is present when a community can be seen and experienced and lived. Teresa of Avila in the 1500s said, Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks, compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. And might we add today, having read this text, that Christ has no dwelling place, no home in this world, if not by his spirit in us. Let his life be so at home in us that he is known in this world. Let's pray together. Father, we come today as individuals, as isolated people. And if left to our own devices, God, we'd probably stay that way. But you call us out of that and back into community with one another. You heal us of our sin so that we can know you and know one another fully. God, we pray that your spirit would be welcomed in this place because a community of believers has been here and will be here in worship of you. God, we pray that you would come and move in our midst, that the world would know who you are. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.